Episode 6 of Poem Life, The Longing for Ruin. When I was young, not sure if it was junior high or even earlier, grade school age, my dad would take me and my brother out on a Saturday or Sunday sometimes, out in a truck driving around to no place in particular, Earbob or Big Hollow or just some side of the road where he would park and we would walk into the woods and roam around. There were a lot of wild places then, the Artesian Springs near Earbob, which is a recreation area south of Locust Grove that's always been run down and beautiful and lost and decaying. In high school, my friends and I would drive out there or to Big Hollow, a park nearby, and start fires and drink beer and smoke pot and tell stories. Those party scenes from that movie Dazed and Confused, that's straight out of Big Hollow, mid to late 70s. No lie. But when we went out with my dad, I don't remember what we were looking for, probably because there was no specific mission. Dad liked to look for evidence of raccoons and possums and deer and would point out bird's nest and where the mushrooms sprouted up and squirrel's nest and why the moss grew where it did. We checked out spider webs and small trees felled by beavers. We walked along dry creek beds, picking up mussel shells and snails, and occasionally an arrowhead. This is probably where I developed my deep affinity with everything rock. I love rocks, the shape, the feel of them, the history of them. Rocks from the river and creek beds have such character, so many stories to tell. My dad is not a particularly vocal man. I don't remember a single thing we talked about when we went out. I remember walking through leaf mold, seeing the light of the sun shining through the leaves and the trees, the smell of decay, the heat of summer on the barbed wire we sometimes crossed. In some ways, there were no boundaries back then. I wasn't a teenager yet, the girl who knew nothing but girlfriends, boyfriends, cheerleading and basketball. That was it, really. Well, that and poetry. I seemed to always find time for poetry, and lots of it, too. Lots of bad teenage poetry. I wasn't writing about walking out in the woods and all the things I found in the natural world that fascinated me. Instead, those things lived inside my poetic soul, and they grew and they blossomed, and then finally came into my writing, but not until I was in my 30s such as this poem. It's called Thinking About You. This is not from my 30s. It's uh, old. Um, it's written on two pieces of loose-leaf paper. It's brown with age. It has creases that show it was at one time folded up to about a two-inch by two-inch square. It's written with blue ink in manuscript, blocky letters. It makes it look like uh, I was very slowly and carefully writing each letter. The I in the title thinking and the I in my last name Perkins are dotted with circles, but no other eyes are dotted in this way. In fact, the dot is missing from every I in the poem. Is this laziness? A deliberate act of rebellion? My little venture into something E.E. E. Cummings-like in my junior high poet way? Well, here it is. Lovely feelings coming over me like a cloud. Earth changes motions, picks me up. I'm flying away, leaving this haunted place, 
the feelings are blue. Tell me more of this place. Sit beside me all the way. We can find it on our trip. The journey will last, so live and let live. Cry when it's over and die in the end. But always look up toward the picture, for they change the world. Changes are mine to keep. They'll live while they can. But here comes the sun, and it all comes back to me. The motions, changes, feelings. Leave while you can. Live while there's time. But tell everyone there is a way, for they will find it. Go tell the world of their arrival. Make way for sins and demolish them. Take our souls and be combined into them. Sit and tell the stories and remember the lines. Remember remember the little lines of our past. I was probably 11 or 12 when I wrote this, still signing my name with a W, not a U. Junior high handwriting. The poem is full of cliches and abstract language, typical of preteen and teen writing. It is giving advice and telling some sort of a fortune or map of the future, but it's so vague there's nothing you can really see in the poem. The poetry from young years and my grade school books was good stuff for the most part, full of imagery that appealed to the senses. But the thing is, good poetry is a learned skill. Most of us start out writing poems just like this one, full of cliches and generalizations with no interesting point of view or voice. When I got older, it was obvious to me that a lot of what I wrote looked in no way like all the really good poetry that I was reading. It seems almost impossible for a preteen, especially, to emulate good poetry through no fault of their own. I don't have a license to practice medicine or psychiatry, but I would posit a guess that this is because we have not left the ego stage of our development that allows us to see that we are not the center of the universe and that everyone will be awed by whatever it is we put down on a piece of paper and call poetry. Also, preteens often see poetry as a way of expressing emotions that they are not expressing openly. And like in my poem I read, they sometimes do this covertly. There is not a thing in that poem that is personal to me, except the first line, lonely feelings coming over me. Then I switch to some other world and entirely leave the personal behind in exchange for a bunch of cliches about what sounds like the end of the world. I'm sure I was having depressed thoughts, but instead of writing concretely about why I was depressed, I went into this apocalyptic mode, so dramatic, junior high. If I feel bad, obviously the world is ending. <clears throat> Side note, teachers and parents who remember this feeling and can write it out with their own kids and students will be so much more successful and happy. We can't do more than our bodies will let us do. Okay, I'm now holding yet another old note from my junior high years. This one is on typing paper, yellow with age. The paper itself is so soft, it just kind of flops in my hand. At one time, it had been folded in half and then folded in half again. It is actually a note I wrote to Luann, or Cricket, and it came back to me through time 
because our grandmother gave it to me many years ago. This note and another one I wrote, plus a newspaper the two of us put together, must have been left at our grandmother's house at one time, which is how I got them back. I feel a, a little like a lady from the days of old when people used to return all the letters that others had written to them. I can date this note to 1975 because it mentions my sister and her boyfriend who only dated during her sophomore year. It also mentions running track, which would have been in the spring. And then lastly, it refers to Mrs. Hayworth, who was a junior high language arts teacher that I remember fondly. I would have been 13 and in the seventh grade. The note is a lot like the 15-page one from Luann, though not as funny. It rambles from one topic to the next with no transition, although I have divided it into paragraphs. I mentioned getting in a fight, and there were three fights that day at school, not getting to go to the Pirate's Cove with my friends, going to Grandma's house, reading a book called The Forgotten Door, and also a book about Picos Bill, and a bunch of other nonsense. There are two drawings in the note. One is a map of Grandma and Grandma Perkins' property. That's in Rose, a little community a few miles from Locust Grove. We would go there every Sunday for dinner. The other drawing is a sketch of a shadow box I made for class, though it fails to mention what it's supposed to be of. It shows a phone booth, drugstore, cigar store, a sign, a sidewalk, and a car. The sign says, two-hour parking only. Though my memories of Grand Grandma and Grandpa Perkins' house are vivid and real and alive in me still, I didn't write any poetry about it until I was in college. Teenagers tend to not write about what makes them happy. Even in college, when I wrote about their house, it was not about how happy I was there, making mud pies in their backyard, playing in the abandoned chicken house, exploring the barn. This is a poem I wrote about their barn. It is typed and dated January 19, 1984, so I would have been a senior in college. One note, there are words in it that they're in italics, words that are things my grandmother and my brother are saying in the poem. So the things that are in italics, I will just try to, to pause so you can tell that's what's going on. How the wind released you. In the thick chocolate night, I lean on the door with my back to the cow, look through the barn, look through the window, cracked, half dead in the darkness. I hear you calling me through those spider web spaces, my name, my name. I saw you jump from the loft, but my back was to you. How could I see you fall? I was picking up milk and magnesia bottles and tapping them on my thigh, shaking the dirt out. How could I hear you? My grandmother called from the house, the wind. A tin pan, the wind. For mud pies, the wind. Come back. I could not hear you, and the wind. Help, and the wind, the ground is soft, and the wind, I didn't want to. In this thick chocolate night, your voice has released me. 
So here I have made up an occasion because I apparently felt a memory from my grandparents' house needed something extreme to make it poem-worthy. The memory I have is simply of looking for treasures in their barn with my brother. But in the poem, I'm having him fall out of the hayloft. The next year, I was in graduate school, and I have another version of this poem. It's typed and has the address of the apartment I lived in in Manhattan, Kansas, in the top left corner. It's been retitled from How the Wind Released You to just one word, blue. Chocolate-thick noon, leaning on the gate, cow breath, scummy on my back. I look in the barn, window cracked, half-dead in the darkness, from chapped lips and sleepy eyes of strange hunters, ripping jeans on barbed wire to get past no trespassing signs, shoot wildly at our hound dogs, chasing rabbits out of the woods, embedding bullets in the barn, bits of glass. Milk of a magnesia bottle taps against my thigh. I flip it over, shake dirt out, nudging my legs, the cow says. The wind says. The ground is ready. From the house, David. The wind. In the loft. Look, where is your brother? Chocolate-thick noon, blue against thigh, blue shining on spider-webbed glass. Behind me, dust lifts off the sorghum field, wants to feel the bottle again. Where's my brother? Kicking rocks across the potato patch, playing a game. Now, both of these poems, really, they're not that great. And the weird thing I'm doing with the voice calling probably does not translate at all, especially if you're just hearing it and not seeing the spacing, dashes, and italic on the page. But in the second poem, I notice I am being more truthful to actual experience. Now, I'm not saying a poem has to be true to our personal experience to be good, but I think it certainly allows one to explore an idea in a way that can be, it can be impactful without describing a serious situation. My brother does not fall from the loft in the second poem. He's just not in the barn where Grandma thinks he is. It seems like, in the space of one year, I figured that out. Poetry does not have to include the loss of life, limb, hope, or home to be good. There's a poem by Benjamin Myers. He's a former poet laureate of Oklahoma, and I don't have the poem in front of me right now, but I'm remembering he's talking about his daughter and... Uh, there's, there's a line about how he's, because she's having such a good childhood, he's ruining her for being a poet. And uh, I, I find that idea to be so true. People who were n nurtured as children and had healthy relationships write very different poetry than those who don't. There's a place in, the, in that note that I have that says, Mom's got something in the pressure cooker, and it's going s-s-s-s-s. Every one of my family members is mentioned in some way in the note. It sounds like I'm sitting on the front porch because I refer to cars passing by. I talk about Roxanne's upcoming slumber party and muse 
Gosh, I don't know where they all will sleep. Two in the bedroom, five in the living room, couple on the kitchen table, one in the bathtub. The next line says, I get my glasses back Thursday. I'll be able to see now. As a junior high student, I could write a note with all kinds of concrete detail in it, all of this real stuff of poetry. But when I went to write a poem, abstraction took over. Darkness, death, and depression settled in. Now imagine this is because I went to poetry to express the feelings swirling inside me of doubt and envy and shame and all kinds of things that we worry about when we are young. That is still a reason to go to poetry as an adult, of course. But as an experienced poet, one learns that nobody cares about these abstract emotions. They are not interesting for others to read about, and only a parent can empathize with them. Everybody else just thinks, so what? We all feel like that. What makes you special? What makes this poem's content special? The particular images we use to describe an experience are what make poems special. We don't really understand that when we're young. Again, it's a biological and personal identity development issue. As an adult, if you are still writing abstract poems that sound like they come straight out of junior high, that probably means you simply don't read poetry and don't understand what a good poem is. You still think it's an outpouring of emotion. And even as an adult, nobody cares. Well, maybe your mom does, if she's still alive. So this note was written on the front porch of our house at 10 South Delaware Street in Locust Grove, where my writing career really took off. This is the place where I probably wrote more poems in a concentrated period of time than in any other time the rest of my life. I remember being incredibly alive and incredibly bored in this house. And I filled the boredom with poems and daydreams. Three blocks from this house was a park where we used to play. There's no telling how many hours and days I spent there. I don't have anything surviving from my childhood that I wrote about it. Just like I have nothing to show for all those days that Dad, David, and I went walking through the woods. Nothing written at the time, anyway. I'm going to end this episode with two poems, one about Dad and one about that park. The first poem is called Green, and it was written in 1985 and was probably a part of a series of poems that just use colors as titles. It says, For Dad, after the title. The first real memory is red, pointy-toed shoes he brought home. I think it was my eighth birthday. Then the hornet's nest he somehow absorbed himself in. I would sit on the edge of the cellar, watch him walk across the road, rifle bopping on his shoulder, coon dogs gyrating as happy hounds do, ahead of him, over and through, rusted knots of barbed wire. The smell of stuffed peppers would carry us in. Sometimes, Awake in my bed, I'd hear him scrape his heels against the steps, murmur to himself of the dogs, push the screen door open. Only a few feet from the ceiling on the top bunk, I could look down at everything, everyone, 
faces meshed together like strips of rag woven into a potholder. We are all colors. He is green, as the grass, the moss on the lone sides of trees, as the thigh-high weeds he rambled through, as the alfalfa fields stiff, pained pleasure for our baby feet. My life has been shiny crabgrass, fields of clover, rashes of the green ground rubbed onto worn jeans, running through life. I would wait for him on top of the cellar, my feet dangling against the concrete, my hands busy with a clover necklace. My life brushes that concrete, passes clumps of clover from hand to hand. It has been green. He is green. And lastly, this is a poem. It's been revised many times. There are versions of it that are three times longer than the one I'm going to read. This latest version is probably only five or so years old. Its original title was Eating the World, but in this version it is The Eaten World. The park, 40 years later, is still green half the year and empty, though its emptiness courses from indifference rather than vandalism created by children no longer running barefoot down a hill. I had to pass the bully's house on the way to the park. His house was patched together with plywood, and the weeds hid snipers with slingshots and rocks big as my kneecaps. Buddy and other boys with shortened names burned branches and left beer bottles in the bathroom, where pipes like stalagmites coiled in the air and words festered in spray paint on the pocked concrete walls. It was safe in the heavy green darkness beneath the sycamores, where the sweet clovers grew in patches. Sheep showers, Kelly called them, and we shook off the ants and ate them next to the corrupted seesaw. In May, the prison band played for Founder's Day, and the park swelled with bacon-fed bodies, women who declared they'd fix up the bathrooms and overall men on tailgates drinking paper bag whiskey. In the summer, along the forgotten picket fence on the west side of the park, honeysuckles thrived and we made houses there and we ate the blossoms pulling out the rich white center. At the park entrance, a peach tree grew round and fat its veins pushing up the world around it, though it never flowered. Each fall, its leaves dropped like curses on the busted sidewalk to the ruined world. I have another poem that talks about longing for ruin. It's the curse of the nurtured child who becomes a poet. What shall I write about if not ruin? When will ruin visit me? I'm glad that I am now old and wise and I long for other things, just simple things like a good ice cream cone or an hour on the couch talking to my mom or justice or honor or achievable, necessary stuff like that. Man, y'all did not want me to finish that cast. Whew.